Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, Lord. We thank you for your word, and we thank you this morning, Lord, as we just look at the person of Jesus Christ, as to, as to who you are. And Lord, we thank you that you came and suffered and died, that we might have eternal life. May we not leave this place this morning with any doubt that you're not only the Son of God, but you truly are God. God made manifest in the flesh, that you're the only way that we can get to heaven, that you're the Word of God and that you're the light of the world. So, Father, we ask, Lord, that you would just bless your word, that you would be our teacher, that man would decrease, that your spirit would increase. Lord, give us receptive hearts to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Two weeks ago, we finished up Luke, and as you know, if you're, if you're new here to Calvary Chapel, we just go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, right through the whole Bible. On Wednesday nights, from the Old Testament. If you're planning on coming Wednesday, read Exodus 30, because that's where we'll be. And we finished Luke uh, right before I went to Israel, so we're going to begin in the Gospel of John this morning. And whenever I start a new book, I do like to take a few minutes and just give you some background on the book. We're going to be, we'll probably be in this book for at least the next six months or so. And so as we are, I want you to understand just some things about the Gospel. Now, many people have asked, why in the world are there four Gospels? I've, I've shared this with you before. You know, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and sometimes if you read them in a row, it's like, wait a minute, haven't I read the same stories over and over and over again? How come there's four Gospels? Wouldn't one be enough? And the reality is, one would be enough if it was in God's Word. But God wanted to give us just a, a, a greater point of view, different points of view on the same stories. We know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. And what that means is they're written almost in symphony with one another. They have very similar stories written from different points of view. Now we know that when we looked at Matthew, that Matthew was, was a tax collector. And we know that that, uh, that that gospel was written mainly to the Jews. The main focus of it was to reveal to the Jews that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. The key word in Matthew, if you remember, we went through it, was fulfilled. And we saw all the Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled in Matthew. So if you've got a Jewish friend that you're witnessing to, and you want to take them somewhere, take them to the book of Matthew, because you see the fulfillment of Scripture. In Mark, we saw that the primary audience was the Romans. The the, uh, emphasis being that Jesus Christ is the suffering servant. It says in Matthew 10, or Mark 10, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Mark was the one that moved the quickest. It's a, it's a gospel of action. If you ever want to read a gospel that's real concise and quick moving, that's Mark. You just, it just moves from item to item. It doesn't have a lot of commentary. It just moves real quickly. Then we just finished up with Luke. And as we know, Luke emphasizes Jesus as the perfect Son of Man. Really gives detail to His humanity. You know, as he was being crucified, nobody gives greater detail than Luke. At all the suffering, Luke was a doctor, and he gives a greater detail just of the humanity of our Savior, that while he's fully God, he became fully man and was willing to suffer and die, that we might have eternal life. The key verse in Luke was, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. We saw in Luke that he's the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. He's the one that came to seek and save that which was lost. And then now we're going to come to John. And John, unlike the Synoptic Gospels, is mostly new material. Over 92% of John is stuff that's not found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're going to see that he doesn't talk about the birth of Christ. He doesn't go into a lot of genealogies. There's no mention of the demonic in in the Gospel of John. But the Gospel of John emphasizes the deity of Jesus Christ. It's really focusing on the fact that Jesus Christ is God. Let me say that again. Jesus Christ is 
God. He's not just the Son of God, though He is the Son of God. But He is God. God made manifest in the flesh. There is no other God before Him, beside Him, and there will be no God after Him. You know, there's churches out there that will teach you that you're going to be God one day. Guess what? You're not. All right? You'll never be God, right? Now, we'll be in heaven, and we will be like Him, but we'll never be God. We will be there worshiping Him. No one will be worshiping us, and we don't deserve to be worshipped. Amen? And so, we're going to see as we go through John the deity or the holiness of who Jesus is. Now, let me talk to you quickly about the author before we look at the text. Now, who is John? And I want to just say this about John. He, he is one of the three, that, that inner circle that Jesus had. So, I've talked to you about this before. Jesus had a fourfold ministry. He ministered to the crowd, to the 70, to the 12, and to the three. The crowd were the people that he spoke to quite often in parables. And it was just, he would stand out and, and on a mountain and he would give a sermon and would reach out in general to the crowd. And he would reveal things to them at a certain level. But those who drew near to him would become one of his disciples or the 70 that followed after him. And to them he revealed even greater things. But within that 70, he had the 12 known as the apostles. And those 12 apostles were the ones that lived with him and ate with him and, and, and stayed in the homes where he stayed. And they lived and followed Jesus with their whole heart. They laid aside everything and walked with our Lord. But within that 12 was the three. And the three were Peter, James, and John, who wrote this gospel, who, through the power of the Holy Spirit, wrote this gospel. Now, John, as we'll see, was called, he calls himself the, one, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, some people have made fun of John and said, oh, man, was he arrogant, you know, talking about, well, yeah, I'm the one Jesus loves. That'd be me, right? And you know what? It's the exact opposite. He never mentions his name in the entire gospel. And I believe it's because of his humility. He's so humble that God would use him, that God would call him, that God would allow him to follow with him. He names all the other apostles, but he never mentions himself even one time. I think it's a sign of humility. But Peter, James, and John, that inner circle, they witnessed some things that no other men witnessed, and I believe that they became the pillars of the first century church after Jesus ascended back to the Father. Up on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus revealed His glory, when He, when he for a moment veiled that humanity and revealed His glory, who was there? It was Peter, James, and John. When Jesus went in and He healed Tabitha, raised her from the dead, He took three of the apostles in with Him, and who did He take? He took Peter, James, and John. And when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, and he would draw away from the twelve, which three did he take with him? He took Peter, James, and John. John was also the one that was at the cross. He was the one that the Lord looked down and said of his mother, Look, behold your son, and John, behold your mother. He literally gave the care of his earthly mom, and that's all she was. Now, she was blessed among women, but she's not the mother of God. She's the mother of Jesus, amen? Even though Jesus is God, I don't want to give you a headache this morning, but God used her so that she may be, that God used her and God blessed her, but she's a woman in need of a Savior just like all of us, amen? Sinner in need of a Savior. But we see that John had a near and dear place in Jesus' heart, and he was one that was very close to our Lord. It's also said that his mother, his name is Salome, and we know from history that Salome and Mary, the mother of Jesus, were related and so in a sense, John was related to Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know if he grew up with the Lord or if he spent time with him as, as a child or not. We have no way of knowing because it doesn't say anywhere in the text. But we know that John had a very special relationship with Jesus Christ. Again, the only one present at the crucifixion. The key verse, 
I believe that, and it's interesting to me that, that John, even though he gives 92% totally unique things that we see nowhere else in any of the Gospels, the last verse of John says this, and there were so many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. You know what? Even though the Gospels have written so much about our Savior, it doesn't even touch all that he did when he was here on the earth. Now, it's interesting to me that that means that Jesus did many great things that we will not know about this side of heaven. And you know what that tells me? It tells me that our Lord's concern was ministering to the individual as much as ministering so that we might know who He is in revealing Himself. You know, our Savior loves people. He loves you so much He'd rather die than live without you. You are His treasured possession. And so we see that, that our Lord did so many things that it could, was not all recorded. We know that John also, by the power of the divine Holy Spirit, wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then later the book of Revelation. Church tradition says that, that all the other apostles had been martyred, and John, they took him and they tried to boil him in oil, but he did not die. And after that, they figured, well, we better not mess with them anymore. And so they exiled, exiled him out into the island of Patmos. And there he wrote the book of Revelation, where God revealed to him the end times. So that's who, that's who John is. And so that's what we're going to pick up by looking at this morning. And I want to say this. Here's the title of the message this morning. Pretty clear. Jesus is God. Amen? Not, again, not one of many gods. Not the first of creation, as we're going to see. It says in 1 Kings chapter, chapter 8, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Solomon asked as he dedicated the temple. Will God indeed dwell on earth? He's building the temple, he's dedicating the temple, and he's saying, will God indeed dwell here? Now we know from those of you who are coming on Wednesday nights that in the tabernacle and in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, something dwelt there. Someone, I should say. The Shekinah glory of Almighty God. God dwelt on the earth in the Holy of Holies. But we know that he was in the temple and he was in the tabernacle, but guess what? Later, because of the disobedience of Israel, it says the glory hath departed. It's in the book of Isaiah. The glory departed. It was no longer. And so, actually in Ezekiel chapter 9, excuse me. And so the glory was gone, and for hundreds of years, there's no prophetic truth. There's no new message. There's no new word. And now Jesus is coming to earth after 400 years of prophetic silence. You know, will God dwell in the flesh? Will God dwell on the earth? And the answer is yes, He did dwell on the earth. You know, it was awesome when my dad and I were gone. We got to see the place where Jesus was crucified and where he was buried and where he was resurrected. And again, you go into the tomb and there's no bones in there. Amen? He's a risen and living Savior who's triumphed over sin and death. So we're going to see this morning that Jesus is the perfect Son of God. We'll see that He's the Word and the Light. Next week we'll see that He's the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the King of Israel, and the Son of Man. All of that in the first chapter of John. John is very clear about who Jesus is. He's focusing on His deity. You know what? When you meet a new believer, or you meet somebody who wants to know about Jesus Christ, I, I know you've heard this before, tell people to start by reading the book of John. I've many times challenged people, just go and take a couple hours out of your life and sit down and open up the book of John and say, God, if you're real, reveal yourself to me and just read through the book of John and you're going to see Jesus Christ is God over and over and over and over again. So let's pick up this morning and again, Jesus said, He that has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is God's Word. 
And it's, it's awesome to me that he is, he is what reveals God to us. So let's begin in verse 1, one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. Right here. We could, we could stay here for three weeks, but we won't. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is a verse that Jehovah's Witnesses don't like very much. And you know what? They like to add words to it because it just destroys what they believe. And here's the reality. He was not a God. He is God. It says, in the beginning. Now let me talk about that just for a, uh, for a moment. And I love the fact that, again, here's John. How does he start the message? He doesn't say, you know, he doesn't tell you the story of Bethlehem. And he doesn't give you a genealogy going back to the son of David like happens in Matthew speaking to the Jews. He goes back further than that. He goes back to the beginning. In the beginning. Where else do we see those three words? What verse in the Bible? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning. In the beginning. Now, the words here for in the beginning is a phrase that means in the beginning before anything existed. Before there was time, before there was space, before there was anything. In the beginning, before anything existed. Now, I know this gives you a headache because it gives me a headache. You ever think about where God was 50 billion years ago? Where was He? Well, He was there. Where was He before? Well, He was there. Well, where was He? He's always been there. Well, when did He get? He's always been there. And it gives you a headache, right? And you know what? It ought to because we're finite man trying to understand infinite God. But you have to understand that He created time and He created space and He's the one that put space there. And He's the one that made time exist. And before that, there was no time and there was no space. Now, what do you mean there's no space? Now, that gives you a headache as well. But this just shows you how awesome God is and how finite and weak we are. Amen? I'm glad I don't serve a God I can just totally figure out. Amen? Now, I'm not saying I have faith in spite of the evidence because that would be... That would, be, that would be foolishness. I have faith based on the evidence, but I want to tell you this. There's some things about our God that will always be bigger and greater than I can fully grasp. And that's because I'm finite man trying to understand infinite God. John used this phrase as an absolute sense to refer to the beginning of time, space, and again, the material universe. In Genesis 1, the word God there is Elohim. Now, it's interesting to note that Elohim is plural. El is singular. Elohim is plural, and it must be three or more. So in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. That means God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the word created is singular. So Elohim is plural, and created is singular. How is that possible? You don't do that in, in any language. You don't have the, the, the part of the sentence be plural and the, and the other part of it be singular, unless you've got the triune Almighty, one God, creating something. And that's what happens in, back in Genesis chapter 1. So in the beginning, and he goes back and he hearkens back to that, and he says, in the beginning was the Word. So the Word always has been. The Word existed before the universe began. So before the universe began, the Word existed. Now how did the world come into existence back in Genesis chapter 1? What happened? What did God do? He spoke. With the what? The Word. And as He spoke the Word, the world came into existence. And so in the beginning was the Word. The Word pre-existed eternally before the universe. So, it's, so I want to make this clear. The Word is not something that is created. The Word always has been. It's not a created thing. The Word always has been. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The Word is God. I know, again, 
The Word is God. Not the Word is a likeness of God. The Word is things coming from God. The Word is God. And we're going to see who the Word is as we continue on in the text. The Word is God, has all the attributes of deity, and is fully God. I just wrote down some verses real quickly, talking about how Jesus Christ is God. Here's just a few. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated what? What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. So Jesus Christ is God. Isaiah 9, verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Who is that child that was born? It's Jesus Christ. It says here that he's what? He's Mighty God. Jesus Christ is God. Exodus 3.14, And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou you, shall you say unto the children, I am hath sent you unto me. But here's what we hear in John. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And so the great I am is Almighty God in the burning bush. Amen? But what did Jesus say in John chapter 8? Before Abraham was, I am. I am is the name of God. What, when I go back and tell the, the people that, that God sent me, what shall I tell them your name is? He said, tell them, I am. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus Christ is God. Isaiah 44, 6 says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer to the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, and besides me there is no God. So not only is Jesus Christ God, there is no other God beside Him, before Him, or after Him. It's all in the perfect uh, persons of the Trinity. That it's the only God that exists. There's one true and living God. So we see that He is the eternal God. The Word is eternal. The Word always has been. Look at verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. So before things existed, He existed. He always has been. He always will be. He was not created. He's God. So He's the eternal Word. But Jesus Christ is also the creative Word. Look at verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. So Jesus is Creator, not created. God created the worlds through the Word. and how So old creation was created through the Word. And we become new creations in Christ through the Word. Amen? The old creation was created through the Word, and we become new creations in Christ through the death of the Word upon the cross and His resurrection from the dead. You know, people say to me all the time, you know, you Calvary Chapel people, you act like the Bible's the fourth part of the Trinity. You're so into the Bible, man. And I say, you know what, it's not the fourth part, it's the second part, because Jesus Christ is the Word. Amen? Now, not literally, but here's the reality. Jesus said that He elevates His Word even above His name. You know why? Because people have taken the name of Jesus and they've made Him the most elevated of all the gurus. Go to downtown Santa Cruz and you'll find out. There's people that think that Jesus is the most elevated. He's got the whitest of all the auras. You know, the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses, Michael the Archangel, the Jesus of, of the, of the uh, Mormon church, is he's the brother of Satan. And that's why it says he elevates his word even above his name because through his word we understand who Jesus truly is. He's not the brother of Satan. He's not the most elevated of all the gurus. He's not Michael the archangel. He's God. Amen? Made manifest in the flesh. Now all, it says everything was made through him. And I love this, was made. Creation is a finished product. You know what's amazing to me? Scientists 
new things out in the universe, and they act like, you know, whoa, we, you know, there's something new out there. Well, guess what? It's not new. Amen? When God spoke and created the worlds, it was there. It's always been there. Amen? You know, you know, if you want to get a headache, do you know that God created light before he created the sun? Did you know that? Read it. People say, well, how could the, how could the stars be, you know, all those millions of light years away, and the light takes that long to get here, but the world only be six or 7,000 years old, and they, they, so they doubt it. But wait a minute, he created the light before the stars were there. So the light was already coming to the earth before the stars were put there. How could you do that? You'd have to be God. Amen? And God did that. So the light was reaching earth before the stars were ever put out there. He's God. And so he created. Everything was made through him and for him and by him. You know what? He created the stars. He created the sun and the moon. And it blows my mind. I was just looking. These are old facts. Dr. Webb's going to get after me and give me some new stuff probably. But these are old, old facts. Like 12 years old, I was reading them in a, in a, uh, a book. Do you know that there are, this is interesting to me, because it says all things. He created all things. And we're still discovering stars and new creation, but he created it all. Do you know that 1.3 million earths fit into the sun? That's pretty big, huh? 1.3 million Earths fit into the sun. But 64 suns fit into the star called Antares. And that sounds pretty big. So 64 suns, so, so something like 100 million of our, our, uh, of our uh, Earths would fit into that one star. But you know, Antares is a puny star. Because 110 million Antares will fit into the star called Hercules. So how huge and how mammoth is creation that we're this little speck on a speck inside of the speck, right? I mean, we're tiny in comparison to the universe, and God spoke, and it was all there. And Jesus made it all. And then people are blown away to think, well, how could Jesus turn water into wine? I'm thinking pretty easy compared <laughs> to speaking the stars into the sky. Amen? I mean, sometimes we go, man, that would be real. He's God. He can do anything He wants. He spoke the stars. Now, you go backward, you put away the telescope and you get out the microscope. And again, I read this in a book, so I, I mean, hopefully this is accurate. But it says that in one drop of water, if you took every atom in the drop of water and you turned that atom into a grain of sand, you would have enough sand to make a, a walkway from San Francisco to New York. That's how many atoms there are in a drop of water. Now, who created all those atoms and put them all in place and made them exactly where they need to be and also put the stars in the sky and as mammoth as it is? Who created all of it? Jesus Christ did. It says right here, it was all made through the Word. He spoke and it happened. He's God. That's the God that we serve. And you know what? What's awesome to me is when you come to Him with your problems and struggles in life, just remember that He spoke and put Hercules into the sky. 110 million Antares inside of it. 64 of our sons inside Antares and it takes... 1.3 million earths to fit into the sun. I mean, how awesome is that? And he spoke and made it happen. Do you think he can take care of our problems? Amen? We have to remember how awesome our God is. He's an awesome God. He's the creator. He's the Alpha and the Omega. You know, it's interesting to me that he's called the Word, and he's also called the Alpha and the Omega, and Alpha and Omega are the letters. Amen? So he's not just the Word, but he's the letters in the Word. He's the A and the Z of everything. He's the beginning and the end, and He's the Word. And that's who we trust in, and that's who our God is. You know, it's so sad to me while I was in Israel that people are walking around looking for the Messiah. They've got signs up saying, Messiah is coming. Yeah, He's coming, but it's not coming the way you think. You know what? He's already been here, and when He comes back this time, He's not riding a, 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 a donkey of peace, but He's coming on a white horse to bring judgment. 
And you know, here's the reality. We have to make a decision about Jesus Christ. And they don't trust in Him, but He created them, and He loves them, and He died in their place that they might have eternal life. That's the God that we serve. Jesus made it all. And what's awesome to me is He spoke all that into existence, and then He came to earth. You know, we're that little speck on a speck where the, tiny, the earth is so tiny compared to the universe, and then we're little people on this tiny earth. And then Jesus became one of us out of His love for us. What an awesome picture of grace and love and mercy. That's the God that we serve. It's not us trying to be good enough to achieve something. And you know what? We're so puny compared to, to eternity. But here's the good news. In God's eyes, we are His treasured possession. What an awesome God that we serve. He loves us so much that He became like us. Created by Him, for Him. And do you know it's held together by Him? Do you know if God let go of the universe for one nanosecond, it'd be game over? Right? I mean, game over. I mean, he lets go, that's it. <clears throat> Everything's cra- done. We think nuclear bombs are big, right? If God just let go for a nanosecond. So, who do we trust in? Not, not science or anything else. And you know what? Science doesn't prove the Bible. The Bible proves science. Scientists keep changing their mind. The Bible's the same yesterday, day, and forever. Our God's the same yesterday, day, and forever. Amen? He's the focal point. He's the answer. And that's who we trust in. And so we see here that he is the Word. Everything was made by him for Him, and through Him. So not only is He the Word, but He's the life and the light of men. Look at verse 4. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. So Jesus is also the light of the world. Now it's interesting that the word life is used 36 times by John. The word light, excuse me. And you know what's awesome to me? What must we have to have life? There's four things that we need. We must have light. We must have air, we must have water, and we must have food. And maybe we ought to remember that sometimes. Sometimes we think that we need a lot more than that to exist, but the reality is, those are things we need. Everything else is is a bonus, right? So, we need light. If we didn't have light, if the light went out, what would happen? Everything would stop growing and we'd all die real quickly. If the sun went, game over, right? We wouldn't be, we have nothing to heat the earth, nothing to grow our plants, nothing to take care of us, we'd be done. We need air, we've got to breathe. We need water. Without water, I mean, I'm up here drinking it right now. And we need food. Now, it's interesting to me that when you look at the person of Jesus Christ, He is called the light of the world. Why? Because without Him, we're done. Just like taking the S-U-N away, if you take the S-O-N away, it's just as bad, if not worse. Amen? It also says that He is the breath of life, right? Remember, by the power of the Holy Spirit, He breathed into Adam and gave him life. So where does our air come from? Who's the air that we breathe? We sing that song. This is the air I breathe, right? It's, it's our Savior. Who's the living water? It's Jesus Christ. Who's the bread of life? The manna that, that rained down as they are wandering in the wilderness. Again, it's a picture of Jesus Christ. So all that we need it can be defined in one word, and it's Jesus. Amen? We need Jesus. He is God, and only through Him can we have life. Without Him, we're walking dead men and women. He's the light of the world. It's interesting. What was the first thing that God spoke into existence? In, John, in Genesis 1, verse 3. And God said, let there be, what? Light. And who's the light? It's Jesus. Man, I love that. I mean, you look at, the, you look at Genesis, and you look at John, and it's all about Jesus. It doesn't, you've seen that in, if you're coming on Wednesday nights. We're going through the tabernacle, and it all points to Jesus. And you cannot look at a page in the Bible and not see Jesus Christ. 
You go to a genealogy in the Old Testament, and you're going to see Jesus Christ there. I love what John Corson says. It's not about hermeneutics, you know, the taking out of Scripture. It's hemeneutics. We ought to be looking for him on every single page because he's there. And that's why we study every page. We don't skip over stuff. And he's the light of the world spoken into existence. Now, what does light do? And it's interesting that Satan is called the prince of the power of the air, and he's also called the prince of darkness, right? Very clear contrast between Satan and our Savior. Light and darkness. So what does light do? Why do we need light? Light illuminates truth. You put, he shines a light on something and it reveals truth to us. It exposes darkness and it's the source of, source of growth. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? He's the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. And apart from him, we're lost. Apart from him, we have no truth and no answers. And apart from him, we're spiritually dead. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Darkness can neither understand. Look what it says there. And the darkness did not comprehend it. The light was shined into it, and the darkness did not understand it. And remember what happened when Jesus died on the cross. We just looked at this two weeks ago in Luke 24. When Jesus died on the cross, from noon until 3 p.m., what happened? Who remembers? It went dark. They did not comprehend our Savior. They they did not repent, they did not turn to him, and the entire world went pitch black. A picture of what happens when we turn away from the true and the living God. We're lost in darkness. Satan strives to keep people in the dark. That's his hope. That's his desire. It breaks my heart when I, w- I was witnessing to a lady on the way home on the plane. You know, you get a 17-hour plane flight, you can pretty much teach the Bible to somebody if you want to, Right? And, you know, we get on the plane, and she finds out I'm a Christian, and that, you know, she's a Jewish lady, and she's like, oh, okay, one of them. I said, yeah, one of them, absolutely. And so we start talking about the Lord, and she said, she said, well, you know, I, I heard somewhere that the Christians are, if we don't receive Jesus, that you guys are going to kill us. I'm like, what? I'm going to kill you? I said, no, we love you. I said, I'm praying for you. We love you. I said, Jesus loves you. I said, he came, and she goes, oh, don't talk to me about Jesus. I said, no, I said, no, wait a minute. What have you been waiting for? The Messiah, right? I said, you know what, let's just take a moment. Let's talk about what you and I have in common. And we went back to the Old Testament. I said, do you believe that God created the heavens and the earth? She said, absolutely. I said, did he create it in six days and the seventh day he rested? She said, without a doubt. Did he take a rib out of Adam's side and make woman? Yes, he did. I said, did, did, did the people fall into rebellion and God brought a great flood in Noah's Ark? Oh, I absolutely believe that. What about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Oh, yeah, no doubt. I said, let's start looking at, the Old Testament reveals Messiah, doesn't it? She said, absolutely. I said, Abraham took Isaac up onto Mount Moriah. Remember that story? She's like, oh, yeah, I remember that story. And he's up on Mount Moriah. What did he do? He went to sacrifice his son. And he calls him his only begotten son, even though it's his second son, because of his preeminence, not because of his birth, birthright, and he went to sacrifice his son. Do you remember that story? She's like, oh yeah, I remember that story. Where did that happen? She said, on Mount Moriah. I said, that's right. And I said, now, what happened? It says that God provided himself a sacrifice and kept Abraham from killing Isaac. I said, yeah, that's true. I said, it's interesting. I, I was just at the foothills of Mount Moriah at a place called Calvary, Golgotha, and something very similar to Abraham and Isaac happened there. I said, the only begotten Son of God suffered and died that we might have eternal life. I turned to Isaiah 53 and I said, what does it say here that he was lifted up like a lamb led to slaughter, he opened out his mouth. I asked her about the sacrificial system. I asked her about Passover. I said, don't they have three wafers at Passover and they pull one out? She said, yeah. I said, no, the three wafers are made of the same thing. Yeah, that's true. You pull one out and you break it in half, right? 
Oh, yeah, the middle one, right? Yeah, you break it in half. Then you wrap it in linen, and you go and you hide it. She said, yeah, that's right. And then the kids go and find it, and everybody celebrates when it's been found. I go, yeah. I said, so three wafers of one substance, you take the middle one out, you break it in half, and you hide it, and then you rejoice when it's been found wrapped in linen. Is that right? Well, yeah. I said, who do you think that's a picture of? I said, three in one, that's the Trinity. The one in the middle, that's Jesus Christ. Broken, that's his death upon the cross. Wrapped in linen, that's his burial. And guess what? When he was risen from the dead, the whole world should be rejoicing. You know, here's the reality. Darkness. Satan puts people, what's a veil over people's eyes. Now, I talked to this lady for hour after hour after hour, and she would just refuse to believe. And it breaks your heart because Satan has put that veil there. And they're walking around in darkness. He's the light of the world. And without Him, we're walking in darkness. We don't comprehend and we don't understand. Let's move on. Verse 6. So we see that He is the Word of God and He is the light of the world. That's who Jesus Christ is. Verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. Now you got to love... I love John the Baptist. I love this guy. Man, I love this guy. I mean... You know what Jesus said of him? Of men born among women, there's been none greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was not worried about what the world thought. The guy was eating locust and honey and living out in the desert and wearing, wearing you know, skins on his back, right? You guys heard that song by DC Talk, Jesus Freak? The first verse is about John the Baptist. That guy was a Jesus freak, and I like him. Now, John the Baptist, it says, though, that of all these great things about him, we know that, first of all, that he fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. In Isaiah 40, verse 3, it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord, making straight in the desert a highway for our God. So, John the Baptist was the answer or the the first light after 400 years of prophetic silence. Along comes John the Baptist pointing people to the coming Messiah. It says, making a path for our God. Again, Jesus Christ is God. He's the forerunner of Christ. I'm not going to go into it, but we talk about Jewish wedding ceremonies. I've talked to you guys about this many times. How the best man comes running into town after the house has been prepared and gets everybody ready by saying, He's coming! Get ready! Get ready! The the groom's coming! Guess what? John the Baptist, the best man, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, was preparing the way for him. We know that he was a prophet and a priest. He's the son of Zacharias. We looked at that story in in Luke. But you know what a prophet is? A prophet is one who talks to people about God, and a priest is one who talks to God about people. And that's exactly what John the Baptist was. And that's what we're called to be in ministry. We're called to minister to people on behalf of our Savior. Be salt and light to a lost and dying world. And we're called, especially you men, to be priests in your household, to intercede on behalf of our families. So we're called to minister to others and minister for others, to the Lord. And that's what John the Baptist did. The Bible says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. That's awesome. This guy was filled with the Holy Spirit from before he was born. You want to talk about some, some perspective. He came out knowing uh, that's what life's about. It's about Jesus. I'm the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And you know what? Jesus said of him, of men born among women, there's been none greater than John the Baptist. But all these things are true about him, but what was his calling when he came? His calling was to do one thing. This mighty man of God was sent to do one thing, to bear witness of the light, to point people to Jesus. What did John the Baptist say? Jesus said of him, none greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, I must decrease that he might increase. Amen? 
you know what? He wasn't out doing the worldwide ministry of John the Baptist. Amen? He wasn't building a ministry for himself. He wasn't having miracle crusades, slapping people in the forehead. and He wasn't doing that. He wasn't doing things to draw a crowd into himself. He was doing one thing. He was pointing people to Jesus. This was the greatest man, according to the Lord, who ever lived. Of men born among women, none greater than John the Baptist. And he had one focal point. Point people to Jesus. You know what? If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. And the greatest thing we can do is point people to Jesus. Amen? The greatest thing we can do is not try to conform them or invite them to become part of our organization. Not try to get them to be Calvary Chapelites. Not try to get them to, you know, chase after us or follow after a man. But just get them to fall in love with the true and the living God. To be a reflection of Him. To be a moon, right? The moon reflects the sun, and we should be a moon reflecting the sun. Amen? And we should reflect Him in such a way that it draws people unto the Lord. And and He said again, I must decrease. How can God shine brightly in my life? I must die to self. If any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For me to shine brightly for God, I must die. My will, my heart, my plans, my desires. I must decrease that He might increase. He came to bear witness of the light, to point people to who the light was. Verse 8, He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Again, we need to point people to the origin of light. Verse 9, and we're going to see here rejection of Christ. This was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Now, through God's sovereign power, He has given every man enough light to be responsible to Him. There is no man that will stand before God in Judgment Day and say, I had no opportunity to know you. Now, the Lord's desire is that we go out and reach the unreached people groups and share with them the love of God. But our God is a just, a faithful, and a loving God. And you know what? No man will stand before Him having had no opportunity. And you know what? The people that live in the United States, we've had more opportunities than we can count to know the true and the living God. This church is on every corner. Got more bio, you know, we have to pick which Bible we want to bring to church on Sunday, right? And you know what? We've got so much opportunity to know Him. And it says there that every man, that this is the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. This is another reason, and I have no problem saying this, this is another reason why Calvinism doesn't work. Calvinism says that God desires that, you know, He chose some. And the rest He chose or predestined for hell. That's not our God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He died, not doesn't say for the elect, He died for the world. Amen? His desire that not one person should, should spend eternity separated from Him. So God does call us, but man has to respond to that. And man chooses to accept or reject Jesus Christ. It says that he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. The word for world there is speaking of humanity or the created universe. The creation was oblivious to the creator. The world, he made the world, but they still didn't know him. Does that sound like Santa Cruz County or what? I mean, we live in a place where people worship the whales, they're hugging trees. You know what I mean? They're worshiping animals. I mean, everything that's created, but not the Creator. Now, the Bible says a righteous man cares for his animal, and we should. We should take care of the, of the earth, but you know what? I don't worship the earth. 
This is a fallen world, amen? I don't worship trees. I'm not out in the backyard hugging on any trees. It's ridiculous, right? I mean, but the world is worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Isn't it sad that the rainbow has come to be a homosexual symbol? It's God's promise not to bring judgment upon the earth through a flood, and it's become a symbol that points to homosexuality. What happened? They're worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And it says here that he came into the world and the world did not know him. The world was oblivious. Humanity was oblivious. Jesus was right there. How'd you like to be Judas right about now? Can you imagine walking with Jesus for three years and then betraying him for the price of a slave and spending eternity separated from God? That's where Judas is. Sad. The world, he came to the world, but the world did not know him. Verse 11. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Again, this can point to mankind in general, but for the most part, this is speaking of the Jewish nation. They rejected Jesus because they knew him not. They were spiritually ignorant. You know, they had Moses. They had the law and the prophets. Just like that woman on the plane. All I talked to her about the entire time was the Old Testament. And I'm just showing her, Jesus, 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 Jesus. She goes, why do you keep talking to me about the sacrificial system? I said, who's the lamb of the perfect lamb that had to be sacrificed? What's the lamb? Who's that a picture of? Who's the altar burnt incense? Who's the light of the world? Who's the showbread of manna? Who's the altar of incense? Who's the holy of holies? Who's that a picture of? With the cherubim on both sides when Jesus was crucified, when they went into the tomb after, uh, upon his resurrection, who was on either side of the bed that he laid in, in the tomb? Angels. And the mercy seat sprinkled with blood. What do you think was on there where the linen had been? There was blood there. Pictures of Jesus. You can't help but see him in the Old Testament. But sadly, people have blinders on. He came to his own, his own received him not. There's 6 million people in Israel, and there's 7,000 Christians. Talk about outnumbered. I felt like I was in a Pharisee convention. You know, down at the Wailing Wall, they all got the black robes on, and they're doing it. And it's sad. It just breaks your heart. You know, I'm like, man, Jesus, hey, Isaiah 53, help me out here. Can we read this together? I mean, it's Jesus Christ, you guys. Psalm 22, who's that? It's got to be, that's the Old Testament. But again, he came to his own and his own received him not. You know what, can I tell you something? My heart, I I pray for you guys. I have a list of all the people in our church in the office. It's right by my desk. And I'm praying for you guys daily. And I'll tell you what, I want every one of you to be there. When we get to heaven, I want every one of you to be there. I don't want any one of you to miss out on the Savior. Miss out on the fact that Jesus Christ is God. That coming to church isn't good enough. We must have a personal, intimate relationship with Him. He loved you enough that He left heaven to come and be an example to us, but then to live a sinless, perfect life and suffer and die in our place. May we not miss that. He came to His own and His own received Him not. You know what? Sadly, I believe there's going to be a lot less people in heaven than we think. Because a lot of people think they're Christians because they're born in a Christian nation. Or because the great-grandma was a, you know, was a missionary. God has no grandchildren. Amen? We're not saved because of our parents. At some point, we must make a decision to follow Him and to serve Him and to make Him our Lord. They rejected Him. It was not enough to be born a Jew. You must be born again. We're going to see that in John chapter 3. Nicodemus, most religious man of the day, comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he didn't say, you know, just keep going to the to, to temple. You know, keep keeping all the rules, do the sacrifices, 
You're fine. Don't sweat it. Is that what he said? He said, you must be born again. You must be born both physically and spiritually, but his own received him not. Praise God that Nicodemus did. People so shackled by religious tradition, they could not understand spiritual truth. Jesus is the way, they didn't walk with him. He's the truth, they didn't believe him. He's the life, and they crucified him. Jesus came to relink sinful man back to holy God, and they missed him completely. Verse 12. But as many as received him, to him he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In the midst of the world's sweeping rejection of Christ, there's a remnant. And the remnant is those who received Him. To acknowledge His claim, to place faith in Him, and to yield my allegiance to Him. It says there that He gave the right. Emphasizes the grace of God. You know what? We're not saved by good works, we're saved by grace. Amen? G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Not anything we do. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Amen? You know, now, there are many things that once we give our life to Christ, that there will be fruit in our life, and there'll be things that we do. You know, we'll, we'll be baptized. I think we should, we should all do that. But do we need to be baptized to be saved? The answer is no. We'll be sharing our faith with the world around us. We'll be doing all kinds of things. Our lives will be transformed. But it's Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Nothing else we need to do. He says, the right. Those who receive Jesus, the word, receive full authority through adoption to become God's children. I'm blown away that I am a child of the king. You know what's great about adoption? Ephesians 1 says we've been blessed, chosen, adopted, accepted, redeemed, forgiven, enlightened, given an inheritance. It's all in the first 11 verses. Those are our riches in Christ. But adoption, I love it because even today, if you adopt a child, you can never disown them. Inheritance-wise. And you know what? We've been adopted, and our Savior will never disown us. Amen? We're His kids. Our name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We're heaven-bound, as DC Talk would say, right? And we're going. What a blessing to know that. And so, we are His kids. We've been adopted into His family. And it says there, the word there for believe, those who believe in His name, means to test and know by experience. How did you know when you sat in that chair that it was going to hold you up? Because you've sat in chairs before, and you know what to expect. You, you know it by experience. To believe in Christ is to know and to trust Him by experience. You've been touched by God, and you believe. You believe. You know Him. It's personal, and it's intimate. Who believe on His name. His name here in this text is Yeshua. What's Yeshua mean? It means Jehovah, or Jesus, Jehovah is salvation. In Matthew chapter 1, when, Jesus would, when, he came to, when they came to Mary, the angel came to Mary and says, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. Jesus, Jehovah is salvation. There's no other name under heaven through which men must be saved. You cannot be saved through Buddha. Buddha is dead. Amen? He's dead. We can go dig up his bones. He, you know what? Hare Krishna, dead. Joseph Smith, dead. Mary Baker Eddy, dead. Charles Taze Russell, dead. All these religious leaders that people follow after, dead people. I was at the tomb five days ago. Jesus Christ is a risen, living Savior who has triumphed over sin and death. Amen? We don't serve a dead God. And sadly, people say, well, aren't there many paths to God? Can't, you know, wouldn't God maybe send 
you know, Confucius to the people in the Middle East and send, you know, you know, and that sounds great, right, from the world's perspective, but here's reality. If one's teaching you reincarnation, you know, you have to go out through the cycles of life and have good karma and, you know, you know, get the feng shui thing working and turn your chairs around and make sure you got the positive chi coming in your house, right? I mean, does that, does that line up with the Bible? Help me out. How can we have that be the answer and Jesus saying, it's appointed for man once to live and then to die and then the judgment? It can't be. It's Jesus. No other name under heaven through which men must be saved. We must believe on His name. And it's not even believing on His church. It's not even believing on his organization. It's not believing on the 12 steps or the pastor that we follow. It's his name alone that will save us. Only through him can we be saved. Almost done. Appreciate your patience. Verse 14. Verse 13. Who was born not of blood, nor of the will of men, nor of the will of, of man, but of God. Physical birth will not save you. It must be spiritual rebirth. And again, Acts 4, verse 12 is where it says, Nor is there salvation in any other name, for there's no other name under heaven through which we must be saved. Jesus is the Word incarnate. Look at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we saw in verses 1 through 3 that the Word is eternal and the Word is the Creator. Now it says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So who's the Word? Jesus. If you turn to Revelation 19, it says when He comes back that He is the Word. It says, and the Word is Jesus. That's what it says. So Jesus Christ is the Word. And it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, it's awesome to me, became, emphasizes Christ taking on humanity. Now, this might not seem, maybe you've been in church so long that this just seems like, okay, Jesus became a man. Oh, yeah, I know that. The infinite took on the finite. The eternal conformed to time. The invisible became visible. The supernatural one took on the natural in the incarnation. The Word did not cease to be God, but He became God in human flesh. And He did that, why? Because He loves you. That's our God. That's the God we serve. Aren't you glad that the Gospel is so simple? It is so simple. It's as simple as the song that I learned in Sunday school when I was three years old. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Amen? That's it. He loves me. And He loves me enough that while I was a sinner, He was willing to die for me. And He became flesh. He came to earth because He loves Dave. Because He loves Leslie. Because He loves Mike. That's why Jesus came. What an awesome God we serve. And when we try to find other ways and other paths, what have we done? And it says there, and the Word dwelt among us. The Word there is to pitch a tabernacle. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was where God met Israel before the temple was constructed. The Shekinah glory was there. And when the Word became flesh, the glorious presence of God was embodied in Him. And it says, And we beheld the glory, His glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, we beheld His glory. Although He was deity, He veiled it in human flesh. The Gospels contain glimpses of His divine majesty. On the Mount of Transfiguration, they got a glimpse of who Jesus really is. And if they got a full, a full view of it, they'd have been dead and would have never came back down from that mountain. Again, five days ago, I was standing at the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus was transformed. What an awesome thing. And He revealed His deity. They saw Jesus display the attributes and the characteristics of God. Jesus said, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. Now, some people struggle with this word, but it says here later, it says, the only begotten of the Father. People say, see, there it is. Only begotten. That means that He's created. No, it doesn't. Because the word is 
for only begotten in the Greek is singularly unique, which means like no other. It emphasizes exclusive character of the relationship between the Father and the Son in the Godhead. does not denote origin or prominence. Remember I said that Abraham referred to Isaac as his only begotten son. Well, is that true? No, but spiritually it was, and you can, you can read that in Hebrews chapter 11. And it says there, full of grace and truth, full, full of uh, undeserved kindness towards others. Again, God's riches at Christ's expense. While gracious toward undeserving man, he's also the truth. Look what it says there. John bore witness of him and cried out, He is of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. So not only is he grace, but he's also truth. He is the dividing line. You know what? People try to measure themselves against other men. You know, well, I'm, I'm not Charles Manson. You know, if God grades on a curve, you know, if like Mother Teresa's up here and Charles Manson's down here, I'm thinking I'm a little... I'm on the top side of that scale, no doubt. I mean, I'm not killing people or nothing. I'm, you know, I'm probably pretty good. And we try to use men as the measuring stick. But the measuring stick is Jesus Christ. And compared to him, guess what? We're in big trouble. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. But what's great is it says here that he is a God of grace and a God of truth. He's a God of grace. He loves us so very much. He is God, and he is the standard by which we will all be judged. And then it says here, John bore witness of him, verse 15, and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. How could he be before John the Baptist when John the Baptist was born before him? How is that possible that Jesus was before John the Baptist when we know that John the Baptist was born before Jesus Christ? Because he's the Word, because he's always existed, because he's God, that's how. Amen? Two more verses. And the fullness and of his fullness we have all received grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What does the law do? The law reveals to us our need for a Savior. Sadly, people, and I saw thousands of, millions of Jews actually doing this last week, where they've taken the law and they've made the law the standard and they try to keep the law so somehow they can earn God's favor. The law, the Bible says, is a taskmaster that leads us to the cross. It's like a mirror. When you hold up a mirror, you see that you've got frailties. You see they've got hair falling out, stuff like that, right? All right? You see the frailties, and that's what a mirror does. And the law is that mirror that when you look at the law, you say, you know what? I haven't kept that. I've blown it. And the law is a taskmaster that leads us to the cross. So Moses is not the answer. Moses and the law points us to the answer and our need for the answer, and that's Jesus Christ. Verse 18, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who is the bosom of the Father. He has declared Him. No one has seen God at any time. God is infinite, omnipresent, outside of time and space. But we've seen Him in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus has has portrayed God to us. It says he's in the bosom of the Father. Even while on earth, Jesus was still in the bosom of the Father. He is one with God. He is equal with God. Jesus Christ is God. And I've said that about 50 times, but that's okay. The word, therefore, declared is where we get the word exegesis. Those of you guys who have been coming on Friday mornings, I've taught you observation, interpretation, application. How do you teach a Bible study? It's not eisegesis where you take stuff and put it into Scripture. Exegesis means you pull it out. It's stuff that is there and you declare it. And the word here is declared, interpret. Jesus fully revealed to man what God is like. 
When they saw Jesus, they saw God. When they, when they heard Jesus speak, they heard God speak. When they were near Jesus, they felt His love and His tenderness. God's thoughts and His attitude toward mankind are fully declared in Jesus Christ. What did Philip say? What did Jesus say to Philip? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So, the worship team will come up. In conclusion, Jesus Christ is God. Amen? Amen? I was weak. I know you got... Amen, okay? He is the eternal Word. He has existed from the beginning. Before Abraham was, I am. He's the creative Word. Everything was made by Him and through Him. He's the incarnate Word. He's God made manifest in the flesh. He's the light of the world. What does the light do? It gives us life. It illuminates truth. And it exposes darkness. I want to encourage you. For next week, read the rest of John chapter 1. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that Jesus is God, but He's the Son of God. He's the Lamb of God. He's the Messiah, He's the King of Israel, and He's the Son of Man. And we're only in chapter 1 of John. You want to talk about declaring the deity of Jesus Christ. There should be no doubt who He is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You that You are the Word, and that You became became flesh. You came and suffered and died that we might have eternal life. We thank You that You are the way and the truth and the life. And I just pray, Father God, that, that Lord, that You would be real to each person here. That, Father God, that they would turn to You and cry out to You to be not just a God they know about, but their Lord and their Savior. So, Lord, we love You and we praise You, Father. Just inhabit our praises now. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.